I'll start very briefly with, um, uh, you know, Freud famously discovered repression <clears throat> um, as, a, as a mechanism. And repression in its popular usage and the way Freud discovered it is the idea that we uh, push uh, unpleasant ideas out of consciousness. <clears throat> Sorry. So if we don't like our mother, for example, uh, and this is not an acceptable thought, we push that out of consciousness, but the affect stays. Uh, and what happens is maybe we start to really hate a co-worker and we don't know why. I mean, we have all these reasons why we don't like them, but actually their, their middle name is our mother's name. Or we really dislike uh, our stepmother or, or, or our um, mother-in-law, uh, but really it's, it's a displaced hatred of our own mother, right? So that's kind of repression, what happens in neurosis. But then um, Adler asked a very important question. He said, well, if you, if you ask Freud, how does civilization start? He says it's because of repression. But if you ask how repression starts, it's because of civilization. And so this is a vicious circle. Uh, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? <clears throat> and so Freud basically said, no, Adler, well, it is chicken and an egg. Um, if you have a, a, a proper understanding of evolution, you can answer the question of which came first. Uh, and in the same way, uh, then Freud basically said, we have two types of repression. And so repression, what we call repression is called secondary repression. And then there's what's called primary or primal repression. Now, primal repression, that's what I'm going to talk about briefly. And that's really the core, I think, of this book and uh, of, of uh, some of things other work on this subject. Primal repression is the psychoanalytic name for original sin, right? Um, Primal repression uh, accounts for how we as subjects come into being, uh, as subjects who repress, right? So there, we, you know, if you're neurotic, you repress things, but how do we actually even come to the place where we can repress, right? We have to become subjects before we can be subjects that repress. And so primal repression is the attempt to answer this. And what we're going to discover in this notion of primal repression is Freud's uh, assertion that uh, we are fundamentally inscribed into conflict and we are fundamentally inscribed into lack. And that's why I call it the psychoanalytic uh, version of original sin, right? Because we are inscribed in original sin as an originary loss. Uh, Freud basically gives us a, a way of thinking that. Uh, Lacan clarifies it. So I'm going to use more Lacan and obviously think as Lacanian Freudian. So I'm going to use Lacan. So the first thing that happens with primal repression is the infant is born. Uh, there is no subjectivity to speak of. There is really a unity between the mother and the child. Like there's a sense in which you couldn't differentiate between the two of them any more than you could whenever the child was in the mother's womb. There's this, this closeness, this oneness. Um, and Lacan talks about two mechanisms that have to happen for us to enter into the world. Uh, the first is called the know of the father and the second is called the name of the father. And he's playing on the French, uh, I, I don't speak French, but I think it's the uh, nom du père, right? The, which sounds like the know of the father and the name of the father in French. And also uh, it plays on religious symbolism and it also connects with Freud's discovery. So I'll mention briefly why they're called that as we go. Um, 
but they're not actually connected with the biological father of necessity. So the know of the father is really the point when the infant experiences an agitation or a non-coincidence between their needs and the satisfaction of their needs. At a very basic level, before even the know of the father, an infant cries, uh, and they might be crying because they're hungry, or because they're tired, or because they're cold, or because they're hot, or because they're sick. And the parents have to interpret the needs of the child and respond to them. But there's never a one-to-one -one correlation, right? The need is never fully addressed. Sometimes the child might be tired, but the, the mother or the father thinks the child is hungry. Or even the, t the child is tired, but they don't get the or hungry, but they don't get the satisfaction of that hunger immediately. So there's this little antagonism that begins to generate between the need and the satisfaction of the need. And that antagonism is called desire, right? Where you start to desire, you start to want something which you don't have. The know of the father is really the point where the child really experiences themselves as separate from the other, the mothering one, um, which is often the mother. Uh, and really more primordially, the mother's breast. They start to feel a separation. So in the Oedipal Triangle, this is why it's called the father, because the father gets in the way of Jocasta, the mother, and Oedipus, right? So it's a new of the father. It's also, by the way, how Freud discovered this mechanism. It's very important is that in, at the time when you have very nuclear families, father, mother, child, uh, often the mother has the un unity with the, with the child, and then the father is kind of the one who is the third who kind of then comes in as a new. But anything can act as the new of the father, right? And then secondly, there is the name of the father. And the name of the father is the name the child gives to what the mother desires that is other than themselves. So the child feels a certain separation, say, from the mother. And they're separated because the mother has other desires and other interests. And again, the initial interest, the one that Freud discovered was, well, who else does the mother desire in the nuclear family? Well, the father in an ideal situation, you know, they desire each other and love each other. And the child doesn't have everything that the parents have. So it's the name of the father. But technically it can be anything. It can be the mother's job. Uh, it can be, I, have, I know a couple where the, the mother acts as the name of the father and the father is the more motherly rule uh, it can be religion um, i think some of you will experience this where the desire of your parents alights on say their religious vocation or something like that um, that is the name of the father um, it is an, in psychoanalysis they call this joint attention where there's a point where most children if a, if a mother or father, you know, gives their attention to something, the child also gives their attention to it. So the child learns, like if you, if you point for a dog, the dog looks at the end of your finger. There's a point whenever you kind of point or you look somewhere and the child looks at what you're looking at, which means the child is now seeing that your gaze is resting on something else. Uh, that's the name of the father. Um, interestingly, and as an aside, we might jump into this is, at each of these stages, something can branch off, right? Something can happen. At the level of the know of the father, Bruce Fink argues that something can happen here which can lead to psychosis in, in adulthood. 
And then in terms of something happening at the name of the father uh, can lead to the perverse structure in adulthood. Uh, so these are two things, but these are connected with this primal repression. Now, all of this to say that whenever you experience the no of the father, you experience a loss of jouissance. You feel you've lost something. Something is, is being cut out. You're castrated. You've been cut off from something. Although technically you haven't been cut off from anything because you are the result of the castration. You, you know, to be a subject is to know there's an inner and an outer, to experience an in-world, an out-world, a me and a you. So at this, at this agitation of the know of the father, you start to get a sense of self. But with that sense of self is a sense of a loss of jouissance and a loss of something, which then marks us for the rest of our lives. Uh, original lack, right? Um, and then whenever we desire, we start to desire the desire of the ones we desire. We desire the attention. That This is something I haven't got into, but it's in the book, obviously, which is Bruce Fink makes a thing where the child moves from simply the desire for the satisfaction of their needs to the desire for love or the demand for love. And the demand for love is the demand for the other's lack. Uh, it's the, uh, it's the pres presentation of your own lack to the other and the hope that they will respond to that lack. So Lacan famously, as you know, I think some of you know, he said, to love is to give something that you do not have. So what is it we do not have? It's our lack. <laughs> we, do, we, we are marked with something that we do not have, a lack that is there and yet not there, like a black hole, right? Black hole, Yes, technically isn't an existent thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an abyssal thing, and so we have this abyss of our own lack, and love is where we expose that lack. We uh, become vulnerable, and we hopefully get a response. I have a friend, by the way. He's, he's. Um, uh, I've noticed mothers always love him, right? He's always been me. I always notice mothers love him, and my mum loves him, and I love him. And, as, and we, we joke about this, and go like, what is it about you? But I go like, oh, he has a beautiful frailty about him. Uh, there's something about him that is um, just very subtly kind of like, uh, he's giving his lack in this very subtle way. And I see how people around him uh, kind of like, want to give him love because they are, he's giving them what he does not have. He's giving them his lack. Um, uh, so the child, you know, does this. Uh, uh, What's it saying? Oh yeah. So the the um, oh yeah, the child begins to desire the desire of the other, and desire is lack. The desire of the mother, other, you know, is what do they want, and how can I be the object of their desire? Uh, but also, even more importantly, how can I not be? Um, that's something that Lacan brings up a lot more: is that the child does not want to be everything all the time, there's a suffocation to being the sole object of the other's attention. Um, so it's quite nice to be able to name the father, to name the desire of the other. And of course, this brings us into mimetic desire, where you start to desire the object that the other desires. So all of this to say that our very birth into subjectivity is birth into conflict and into lack. Conflict as in every time we name what the other desires, we can never get it because 
what, what we desire is not the object itself, it's the desire that alights on the object. So every time we get the object, we don't get the desire, and the desire of another is fleeting and it moves. So this brings us into neurosis, by the way. So if you get right through this, this you're, you're unlucky enough to become a neurotic, which is someone who never quite gets the object of their desire because it's never fully fulfilling. So it's a mimetic. You have to move from one object to the other. So this is kind of conflictual as well. The subject is a subject that never gets what it wants, that is in conflict with itself. Um, which feels a lack, that is, in a nutshell, the Lycanian subject. <laughs>